Our scripture this morning is taken from 1 Peter, the entire first chapter, and then the first three verses of chapter 2. 1 Peter, the first chapter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written... Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on the Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so, you, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. God's blessing on his word this morning. Welcome back. We're kind of winding this series on the life of Peter down. And uh, we, we've looked at a lot of things from the life of Peter from the very beginning of his story in scripture, which is the calling of Peter by Jesus to go on a mission with him. We've looked at his attempt to walk on water and then his sinking on water. We, we've looked at uh, his bold, bold failure and his bold eyewitness experience seeing the one who had died alive and eating breakfast with him. And we, we've talked about the transformation that took place in his life after that and how he preached the bold message of the gospel and how he's taken that message from just within the Jewish people and taking it out into the Gentile people, everybody else, the other nations, and, and it was a bold move. And that's what we've kind of learned about Peter through this whole deal is that, you know, having faith, having faith is great, but a bold faith is even better, right? And, that's, and we've hopefully been challenged by that through this, that, you know, great, we have faith, but let's step it up a notch, Right? Let's be inspired by Peter's example and be bold in, our, in the way we live out our faith. And over these last couple of weeks, we're going to look at, at a bold author, really, as he has written these letters to the church. And, and we know that Peter was, as the church launched, you know, one of its leaders, an apostle, one whom Jesus you know, appointed and sent. And, and, and so as such... Peter was like, like a pastor writ large, right? And he wrote this letter. We have two letters that are attributed to him that were sent out and circulated amongst the churches. And in this, you know, he's, he's writing it as a, a pastor, but more than a pastor, as an apostle of Jesus Christ to these churches. And, and his, the words that he writes are every bit as bold as you would expect from Peter. And they challenge us to be bold as well. And so... Today we're going to look at the at First Peter, the first letter we have that's attributed to him, and then next week we'll look at Second Peter. And of course, we can't cover the whole books, although it might have felt to you that we just read the entire book. But but it's a, 
These are long letters uh, by our standards. You know, we're used to sending emails that are just a paragraph long or something, you know. But this was, he took time to sit down and write down his thoughts that he wanted shared. And remember, they didn't have a New Testament. They had oral histories and oral traditions that had been passed on to them from the apostles. So anytime they got something like this from a Peter or a Paul, this was precious to them. This was something that, I mean, they didn't, they didn't have the, phone on, the Bible on their phone, right? Walking around with it. This was, this was sacred to them. And so Peter writes to them. And we're going to just kind of walk through it here in a second, but I just want to kind of mention to us of, of why we should even care about what Peter's writing today and I was thinking back on when I used to be a teacher and yes I used to be a teacher for a short stint because well my first degree was in secondary social studies education and so did that for a little bit and (laughs) thankfully the Lord led me elsewhere because (laughs) you know I, I love teaching the teaching part of it's great the classroom management slash discipline part of it, when, when you don't actually have any real authority anymore, the administration's taken that away, and so, and then you don't have much support at home from many of the parents, and so you, you're just kind of left with nothing, just you, and, you versus them, and there's more of them than you, and so, uh, you know, it, it's not that it couldn't be done, it's just it wasn't very pleasant, and you spend more time doing that than the teaching part that I loved and got into it for in the first place. And so pray for our teachers, but that's not a different message. But when I was a teacher and, and dealing with that, one of the things that I ended up coming up with as I was dealing with classroom management issues is the, stri- the, the three-strike policy. All right, And the third strike, you can probably guess what that was. <laughs> right? Because we know from baseball, three strikes and you're out. But the first two strikes, I would have them write sentences. Maybe you had to do that at some point in school. But uh, that was something that I could make them do in my classroom. There wasn't much I could make them do, but I could make them write sentences. And the sentence that I most often made them write was something like this. I will act like I want to succeed because I do want to succeed. Over and over and over, some of my students had to write that. And I don't know if it ever got through or not. But, you know, if you had asked them, do you want to succeed in life... 98% would have said yes. There's always a couple, you know, in every group. But most of them would have said absolutely. But if they had been honest about whether their behavior lined up with that desire to succeed, probably not. But this is something we all actually kind of identify with, isn't it? I mean, we all say we want to succeed in life, but our behavior doesn't always line up with that. I mean, we all say that we want to be healthy, (laughs) but then you look at our behavior and our our food choices and how much we choose to exercise and you say, well, (laughs) we could probably all do to write some sentences about that, right? We all want to be good people. We do. But sometimes our behavioral choices, the things that we actually do, might leave other people scratching their heads of, I thought you wanted to be a good person. We all want to be, as Christ followers, like Jesus. And yet if God had a three-strike policy, we'd probably all be writing sentences, wouldn't we? At some point or another about, I'm going to act like I want to succeed at this because I do want to succeed. 
That's just kind of a the human struggle. And I think, you know, Peter looked out at the early church and thought, you know, I'd better remind them to act like they want to succeed if they do want to succeed at this whole faith thing that they've signed up for. And so we have this letter from him. And we're going to actually walk through, I'll put scripture up on uh, kind of one chunk at a time. We won't look at the entire thing, that we, but we're going to look at a lot of it. And this will actually be in the New American Standard Version, but you can still follow along with your Bible there if you want. The New American Standard Version, there's all different versions, as you know, of, of your Bible. And some of them are easier to read, and some of them are more literally translated. And this one kind of falls to, to the more literal translation. More, you know, A lot of scholars say it's more accurate, but that doesn't mean it's easy to read all the time. So, but anyway, I think it's good for when we're really studying a passage of Scripture like this. And, and so we're going to dive in at the beginning. And Peter writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens. And of course we're not talking about the extraterrestrial kind. But just anyone who lives in a place where they feel like a foreigner. Where they feel out of place because the, their values and their, you know, the things that they do. And the way that they live their life. The way they dress. The way they talk. All those things just feel different from the place where they live, the society around them. And and so Peter is writing not to people who've literally been displaced from one nation to another, but to people who have been called out from the way that the world lives to living the way that Jesus lives. And so therefore, as you do that, you feel like an alien, as someone who doesn't quite fit in. He also says that they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. This is like Israel language. You know, God chose Abraham and and the people that would come from him. He chose them to be his people. And now God has chosen as his people all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ to be his representatives, just as Israel had once been his chosen people. Now we as God's church are his chosen people for his purpose. And he says we've been chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now that sounds pretty special word, doesn't it? Sanctifying. That sounds about as religious as you can get. But there's uh, some of those words in the Bible that just sound religious to us now. But sanctifying, just I mean, it's just about being set apart. And this is really the whole point. You know, he's opening with these first verses. And, and this is the whole point of this whole letter that he's writing. He's letting us know right off the top. Sanctification is about, it's the work of the Spirit. And for what purpose? To obey Jesus. And that's what it's about. He said, you're like aliens. You've been chosen by God. When you put your faith in Christ, now the Holy Spirit has begun this work in you. Call it sanctification if you want. If that's too fancy for you, call it something else. But it's about obeying Jesus Christ about living the way that he taught and modeled for us. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He goes on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, here again... We run into a term that's been religified, right? (laughs) 
and you you got your Christians and you got your born again Christians, right? And that just means you're extra serious about it or something. Uh, actually, for a lot of people in our society today, when they hear the term born again Christian, they think of fundamentalists. They think of people who are a lot of times a lot of people think of people who are judgmental. And there's like you know, and in the church we have our own idea of a born again Christian and what that looks like and what that means. But let's get back to the first century here for a second. Jesus is the one that started this born again language. Peter's just picking up on what Jesus taught. And he just literally meant you need to start over (laughs) at the beginning. When you come to follow me, it's like being born all over again. And, you know, sometimes I think we've made this Christian life out to be as though, man, you come to faith in Christ and you should, boom, you should be perfect right now. All those things you were doing, that should be done away with. Now you're living holy for, for Jesus. And yet, look at the way Jesus and Peter describe it as being born again. And when you're born again, you're just a little bitty baby. <laughs> and you've got a lot of growing to do. And when we're born again, at some point in our life, into this faith thing in Jesus Christ, we have a lot of growing to do. And Peter is writing to these believers that have a lot of growing left to do. And that's why he's talking to them about being sanctified into obedience in Christ. They were born again. We are all born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And I'll just say briefly about the hope that we have as Christians is that someday Christ is going to return. And when he does, we will all be resurrected as he was resurrected. We'll all be given new bodies, physical bodies, as he was given a new physical body. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, whether it's an entirely new heaven and new earth or just a remade, fixed heaven and earth as we know it. But that's our hope. And this hope that we have is reserved for It's not perishable. And it's reserved for us, like God's keeping it safe, like it's in the bank, all right? Like, like it's being held in trust for you. And you can't think of a safer bank than in heaven, right, with God. And in the last day, as in when Christ returns, we'll find that it's been kept safe for us all this time, that our hope was not in vain. Let's keep going. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The proof of your faith. Now, keep in mind, he's writing to first century Christians who were facing persecution for what they believed. Facing persecution for being uh, Christ followers and for preaching and sharing the news about Jesus Christ. And he writes, as you endure this, you're proving your faith. And as we're going to see There's another way to prove your faith as well, which is actually by obeying Jesus, which is the subject of Peter's letter here. 
And he goes on to say, Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, or joy unspeakable and full of glory, as we sang just a few moments ago. If that sounds familiar, that's why. (laughs) It should. You're not crazy. Though you do not see him. Now, I, I wonder, I was wondering this week as I read that, did Peter and the other apostles ever marvel at the fact that there were all these people putting their faith in Jesus Christ, not because of something they had witnessed and seen, but because of what Peter and the apostles had witnessed and seen. And I wonder if that ever felt a little surreal to him and just that he would marvel at it to say, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Wow. And I wonder if they ever just kind of thought, I wonder if I would have had the faith to do that had I not seen what I had seen and heard what I had heard. Peter goes on. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. I love that. (laughs) In light of this hope you have, in, in light of the fact that you've been born again into this new faith thing, that you've been sanctified by the Spirit, that you're growing into this Prepare your minds for action. Prepare yourself to put to work the things that you've been called to do. To put this faith that you say you have into action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient, there's that obeying thing again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it's written, you are to be holy as I am holy. That's pretty big stuff. He's reminding them that, look, at one point you had not heard the gospel. Keep in mind, this is first generation believers. They had never heard the gospel Many of these may have been Gentiles that had never, weren't even familiar with the Jewish faith. All they had had in their ignorance, as he calls it, not in like a, you ignorant fool, but just, look, you were ignorant of this before. You, You didn't know this before, how to live your life. But you've been called out of that now. And you've been called to something else. You are to be holy in all your behavior. Because as God is holy, so you, now see that sounds a little overwhelming, doesn't it? Like, my goodness. But this is not about like a 60 day plan to be as holy as God and, <laughs> or your money back, you know? This is not about trying to be, this is saying, God is saying, look, if you're going to identify with me, if you're going to be my chosen people, if you're going to be God's people, then live like it. Prove it by the way you live. Be holy as I'm holy. Live as though you're my people. Peter goes on to say, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. Knowing that it is not, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, 
inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The fear of God is just acknowledging that He's God. (laughs) Almighty God that created everything and sustains everything. His power goes beyond our reckoning. Sometimes, you know, we run the risk of, you know, in a, in, in a, how many generations have been passed on to us that God is a loving Father. And that's true. But we run the risk, if we're not careful, of placing our cultural context of, I mean, a truly loving Father is someone to be feared and respected as well. This is not just about, you know, he's, it's not grandfather. <laughs> you know, grandfather, you show up at grandfather's house and he may be passing out $10 bills or whatever, but <laughs> this is about the father that ought to be respected and feared appropriately because of his position and who he is. Ever hear of a father that says, boy, I brought you into this world so I can take you out, right? So... <laughs> I suppose the same could be said of God. If he brought us into this life, surely he could take us out. He is to be feared. But this same God that is to be feared is the one who gave his son. The one who paid this price. Not of mere silver and gold, but the precious blood of Jesus. For you and for me. So it's not just about fear, but love. Both things wrapped up into one that should motivate us in the way we live. And so he says, therefore, because of that, because of that fear and because of that love, put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn babies, there's that born again thing again. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. You know, it's amazing having a newborn baby, you know, and just kind of learning about, Julie tells me stuff more than I research it, but it's amazing what a mother's milk does for a baby and how it's perfectly formulated. And they can't even replicate how perfectly formulated it is for the child and how so much of it gets used that there's relatively little waste that's needing to come out. (laughs) It's perfect. And Peter's saying there's a perfect milk for you spiritually as well, and it's God's word. And it's what you were designed, it's what it's what God designed for you so that you could grow. Because again, like we said, when we when we start off on this spiritual journey, it's like we're born again. And and we're this little baby, and we've got a lot of growing to do. And we need God's word to do it. So he says, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, then do this. We're going to say it this way. Prove who you are by how you live. Let's all say that together. Prove who you are by how you live. That's really what Peter's saying here about, you know, hey, you're chosen. You're you're God's people. He says, be holy as I'm holy. 
you know, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if, then prove it. Prove it by the way you live. Prove who you are by how you live. And who are you? You're His. You're God's. You're, you're purchased at a price, a steep price. You know, in our world that we live in, we're used to, you know, we have pride in where we came from. And we, we take on a lot of the characteristics from our families that we grow up in, right? And we take pride in our families. We take pride in the regions that we live in. I mean, we even take pride in who our football team is, right? And we take pride in these things and we orient ourselves around it. We take pride in the country that we come from as Americans. And we act like Americans, and Peter is saying, look, you, you've been born again into a new family, into a new kingdom that trumps your earthly families and kingdoms and regions and even your football teams. It trumps all of that. And so orient your life the way you live around this new family that is yours first and foremost. Be like God because God is the father of your new family. That's who we are. And how should we live accordingly? Well, Peter talked about in that letter that we read a chunk of about a sincere love that we should have. Definitely love has got to be something that we're marked by. Jesus said, You'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. Definitely, they should know it by the way we treat each other and by the way we treat other people. They should know it by our Christ-like attitude and disposition. They should know it by the way that we reject the temporary things that are addicting pleasures that aren't even actually that fulfilling in the end. We reject those that the world chases after. They should know it by the way that we conduct ourselves sexually, financially, They should know it by the way that we control our stomachs instead of letting our stomachs control us. And in a million ways like this, they should see that we are someone different. Something different. We come from someone different. We're like aliens. Because we're proving who we are by how you live. I feel the need to clarify something today. Because whenever you teach about holiness, sanctification, which are the Technical, you know, theological, biblical words for what we're talking about here in obeying Jesus. And whenever you start talking about how that plays out practically in the way of moral living, living God's way instead of the world's way, you run the risk of some folks interpreting that as into something I'd call moralism. And moralism really boils down to this. Trying to prove how you are better than others. And this is something, a lot of people who you know, consider themselves Christians, they're really subscribing to moralism more than Christianism. All right? And you can tell because of the way that they're so judgmental towards others. You can tell by the way that they are a little bit holier than thou to everybody else. You can tell because they base their, whether they're going to make it to heaven or not on how they measure up against everybody else. And they'll say things like, well, I'm a good person. What they mean by that is I'm better than the people that I see around me. And so then we get into this thing that looks more like moralism. 
And when you read the Gospels, it is abundantly clear that Jesus doesn't have much to say good about moralism that he spots in the world around me. And at the risk of derailing everything here, I'm going to just mention something, a current event that we do, because I think sometimes, you know, pastors, we need to try our best to speak into the current events of what's going on in the day and how the church ought to respond to it. And we won't always get it right, but I'll just take a stab at one here. It's this whole homosexuality thing has been boiling for a while and, and lately there's a lot of uh, you know, you, you'll read in the news about laws being passed uh, you know, and, and judicial decisions being made and the, you know, this judge says that these people you know, they have to bake the cake for the homosexuals and then this state over here passes something that says no they don't have to do anything you know, they have religious rights too and, and then someone else says no but those people have lifestyle rights and you know, what should, whose side should they come down on and all this stuff. And I'm not really going to stand here and try to be the, the judge and jury on whose rights ought to be, <laughs> how to get the decision. But I, I just want to say I'm a little bit surprised that it's even become an issue already where Christians are pushing for these things. Now, don't, hear, don't mishear me because I am not interested in performing a, a marriage that is not biblically rooted, I don't think Jesus would have either. But I just scratch my head sometimes, and I know that it's hard with trying to live a moral life and not wanting to approve of this or that. But I was just thinking about if a gay guy had walked into Jesus' carpentry shop, would Jesus have made him a chair or not? I mean, if it had been for his new house, with his new partner, would Jesus have made him a chair or not? I don't even mean what would Jesus have said to him about it, but just would he have made him the chair or not? <laughs> it's hard to say, but I know there's this one story where this woman was touching Jesus, worshiping at Jesus' feet, and all the religious people around him, all the moral people looked and they said if that guy knew who was touching him he wouldn't let her touch him with a ten foot pole and who did Jesus rebuke so you know I mean I just, it just I just scratch my head sometimes that it's even become an issue that we wouldn't serve you know that that Marlon wouldn't sell a tree to someone? <laughs> I'm not saying, again, that we approve of it, that we marry him or whatever. I'm just saying, can we not make him a chair, <laughs> you know, if they want a chair? And, and again, that doesn't get into the, you know, if, if some people feel like it's their religious right to not do those things or their right as a business owner, I mean, that's for a judge to decide. But for me as a Christ follower, I mean, that seems like a golden opportunity to make the gospel look beautiful to someone who obviously needs it. And so beware of moralism. Beware of this thing of, well, I'm better than them and I need to be holier than them and I need to make sure that, you know, it's about the morals. And if you're immoral, I'll have nothing to do with you. And if you're moral, I'll have something to do with you. And that's an, another point. You know, sometimes we're told by the Apostle Paul and others, don't associate 
with the people that are doing X, Y, Z, and he lists a long list of sinful behaviors. But from my understanding, most of those, the only ones that I know of where he said that, are he's talking about church people. Like Jesus people who do those things. And he says, don't associate with them. He's not saying don't take the gospel to the people that need it. You know, or don't associate with them. I mean, look at who Jesus associated with most of his time. It was all the people that the religious moral folks said shouldn't be associated with. This is hard. It's hard stuff to balance. I think it was hard for the early church to balance too. And we just all have to pray. And we have to read God's word like it says and try to obey the best that we can. Thinking always of what Jesus taught and what he modeled. And let us guard against anything that tries to earn God's favor by the way that we live. Or tries to prove that we're better than someone else. Instead, let us prove who we are by the way we live. Let us respond to who God is and what He's done for us by the blood of Jesus. By saying, God, I want to live for you a holy life. I want to live the life that you prepared for us, that you've set forth as the best way to live. And here's the remarkable thing about that. Even though our motive for living that way is in response to what God has done for us, the result is a better life. The result's a better life. And I don't, I don't, I'm not, as you find out if, you, if you're here very long, I'm not one of those pros- prosperity people that says, well, if you live this way, then just the blessings are going to shower down on you. I'm not selling that. I'm selling that there's a better way of life. And when you live that way of life consistently, your life goes better because that's the way you were designed to make, to live. Or did you think that God made all those rules just so you'd have some hoops to jump through? To see if you could get it before he'd have to blast you. you know? That's not why he made the rules. He made the rules for the same reason you make rules for your kids. Because you want them to be safe. And you want them to be well. And you want them to have the best possible life. And so you make these rules. And you hope that they're going to help them grow into maturity someday. And God made some rules too and set forth some ways that are the best way to live. And so amazingly, miraculously, impressively, imagine that. When we live the way that we were created to live, as Jesus taught us to and modeled for us, life goes better for us. And our family trees get better as that is passed from generation to generation Did you know you have the power to change your family tree if you need to? To pass on to the next generation a better way of life? So that their generation, things go even better for them and they pass something on to the next generation? It's incredible. That's why God says that His word endures from generation to generation. To those who keep his promises. So I want to challenge you today. Be holy as God is holy. Prove who you are by how you live. This is the power to change your life for the better. This is the power to change your family tree for the better. Really it's the power to change the world for the better. So let's do it. Amen.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for men like Peter who passed on the bold call to holy living that we received first from your Son. Some of us, God, here, we need to admit that we've made holy living into a competition or engaged in a moralism that was not humble or Christ-like. Others of us here, Lord, we need to admit that we've severely under-prioritized the call to holy living and have continued living the world's way. Holy Spirit, in both cases, do your sanctifying work in us. Make us holy as you are holy. Teach us your ways. Help us to pass them on from generation to generation until Christ returns and sets all these things that are broken right. And we pray it in his name. Amen.